You are listening to Keystone Stock Talk Podcast, episode 86. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for stopping by. This podcast is produced every week for your enjoyment, and show notes are found at www.keystocks.com. Come back often, and feel free to add the podcast to your favorite RSS feed or on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at Keystocks and on Facebook or via our 24-hour streaming radio station, pennystocks.fm. And keep submitting your stocks via the usual social channels or at our website, keystocks.com, for our Your Stock Artake segment. And we just might review your stock in an upcoming show and let you know if it is a buy, sell, or hold. In our Your Stock, Our Take segment, we answer a listener question on the Trade Desk, symbol TTD on the NASDAQ, a provider of of a global technology platform for buyers of advertising. While valuations appear high, the company has reported solid growth in 2019, highlighted by Q3 revenue growth, which was up 38%, just reported this past week. We will let you know if it is a buy, sell, or hold. Our star of the week is IEC Electronics Corp, symbol IEC on the New York Stock Exchange. It provides electronics manufacturing services to advanced technology companies that produce life-saving and mission-critical products for the medical, industrial, aerospace, and defense sectors. Strong fiscal 2019 numbers have the stock up 18% in the past week, 27% in the last month, and 47% year-to-date. Our dog of the week is Organigram Holdings, Inc., symbol OGI on the TSX, a licensed producer of cannabis and cannabis-derived products in Canada. The stock is down 33% in the last month and 68% since its mid-May 2019 highs. We answer what is driving the drop and if there is an opportunity here. Uh, Let's get into the show. I'm going to welcome my co-hosts this week again, Brennan and Aaron. How are you guys doing? Doing good, Ryan. Doing good. Me as well. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning out there in uh, Saskatoon. Yeah, it's brisk outside. Today. What's the weather like out there, Brennan? Oh, it's it's ugly, boys. It's ugly. Yeah. Do people leave the house in the middle of winter? Um, sometimes, you know, just to uh, go to the grocery market yeah. or uh, maybe some cross crunchy skiing. See, we're, we're we're soft out here in Vancouver, so yeah. we don't have to yeah. deal with the, those types of temperatures. That makes us soft. <laughs> You're all much tougher out there. Isn't it? It's about what is it? Ten degrees today. It's ten degrees. So what do you got there out in in, in Saskatoon today? Do you know? Um, I think it's like minus like twelve. So like not that bad, honestly. Like just wait until we hit mid January and oh yeah, it's, it gets scary. Chilling, chilling. You. Yeah. Well, it uh, sounds lovely. <laughs> <laughs> well, on on to more uh, on to more investment focused topics. I actually really wanted to chat with you, Ryan, because you had a call from a client recently and uh, it was an interesting discussion and I thought that it'd be worthwhile for uh, our listeners to hear what uh, what you two talked about. Uh, yeah, it's a good point. After our seminars, we take uh, you know hundreds sometimes of calls from potential clients and current clients. Uh, this was from a current client. He'd actually been at one of our seminars a year ago and uh, took on our services and it was kind of interesting the discussion on two fronts. 
Uh, one was a fee increase that he just experienced in his regular uh, advisor fee account and uh, how he had made more money with our service. But I can get into it. Um, he he had, uh, I, I don't want to get into the total specifics of his, uh, his situation, but, you know, he had roughly, you know, half a million invested and, uh, you know, 400 plus thousand of that was with his traditional advisor. Uh, he'd had a meeting with that advisor and the advisor had just announced he, one of the reasons he went with our service to back it up here a bit was because he was not happy with the, you know, 15 to 20 year experience that he'd had with that advisor and he wanted to increase his return. So, he had just met uh, in the past week with that advisor who had informed him that uh, one of the big banks that the advisor works for had increased his fee and actually put a 1.5% fee on his account. Uh, and it was just a new fee for that account uh, on top of the, you know, every MER management expense ratio that is on every mutual fund that that advisor was investing him in. So that 1.5% fee now went on top of that 400,000 plus that he had in that account you know it's it's in the range of 7,000 per year in additional fees that he would be paying for an advisor that he already was not uh, happy with in terms of the returns and not bringing him any original ideas or really any ideas at that point and we do hear this type of sentiment many times uh, so that fee was on that account uh, he notified me that they la this time last year he had started investing in the companies that we had been recommending, and he had a forty thousand dollar portfolio built up uh, from those. He informed me that on the forty thousand dollars he had made more money the on that than he had for his total four hundred thousand plus dollar portfolio with that big bank advisor. So deploying far less funds, he'd made more money. Uh, in that account, which was it was great to hear, uh, and he was also just again shocked that that fee increase was there, and we are seeing that uh, in those uh, regular uh, accounts with a, a regular advisor at. Uh, all the big banks right now, they're putting that uh, advisor fee on top. So it's something to look at and look for with your regular advisor, your big bank advisor, uh, if they're overlaying a fee now of 1% to 1.5% on that account. Uh, it can really impact your returns over the long term. And, uh, you know, it's really something that uh, we don't believe that you should be paying, particularly when you're paying, you know, all those MERs and all the other fees that are charged in the account, a regular financial advisor account in Canada. Uh, just look for it to see if that fee is being charged to you. Uh, the other thing that was interesting about the call, too, is he went on to suggest that the the advisor gave him a really great piece of advice, and he it was uh, he was very frank with him. He just said, you know, for accounts that are less than a million now, essentially many of the big banks out there uh, don't consider those accounts to be very profitable. So they're overlaying that fee, and if you leave, they don't really care at this point. This is what the advisor had told his client. And the client had said uh, that's probably the best piece of advice that he'd given him in about 15 years. And he is moving his uh, money now likely to just a discount brokerage account and uh, going to be using part of our service and just buying some low-cost ETFs as well to, to, uh, to build his own portfolio. 
save some money, like we talk about at our, seg- our at our seminars all the time, and hopefully try to make more money over the long term. So the bottom line is that they just don't care, is what the advisor told us. Uh, that's what it sounded like, really. And they're overlaying that fee on the account, uh, which has been introduced to many uh, accounts, you know, in the $500,000 range, having that 1.5% fee put on top, a fee that was not there in many accounts in the past. Um, and it's there now. And, uh, you know, the underperformance is there. And now you're going to underperform even more because there's larger fees in those accounts. And, you know, our fee, the way we structure it, uh, flat fee, far less, over the long term and uh, you know providing you with some unique actual actionable ideas we think the formula uh, works well and uh, we don't mind seeing those fees put in because it drives more people to a service such as ours so and just looking at a fee of of 1.5 percent because some people might look at 1.5 percent and say oh you know it's not really that much. It's it's one point five percent, but we have to we have to look at what these advisors are typically generating for their clients. So if if you have an advisor that is consistently uh, outperforming the market on a risk adjusted basis, then certainly they deserve that one and a half two percent to do that. Agreed. Uh, if, yeah. if they're outperforming risk adjusted after after expenses after you pay those fees. But with most of these big bank advisors, they're not highly qualified people um, when they're dealing with smaller accounts. Um, and, you know, y- you might be getting 6% return on average from your portfolio. In some cases, I think investors are actually getting less on a long-term basis than 6% because they'll be in some equities, they'll be in some bonds, some will do well, some won't. So 1.5% off of 6%, so a quarter of your profit right away is is going to your advisor just in that one fee, yet you take all of the risk. And the advisor might say, well, we provide the intellectual capital to help you invest. But really, when you're talking about these cookie cutter advisors, especially the ones that are at the big banks, they primarily just get their their uh, their clients into funds. So what they'll do is they'll have you fill out a, a questionnaire to uh, that'll basically outline you know your time horizon whether you're your high or low risk tolerance they'll put that in a computer program that'll spit out an asset allocation in terms of how much what percentage of your portfolio should be in stocks what in bonds um, what in Canada what in US what in international you can actually get this done for free online there's apps online that will do it for you um, and then they just put you into those uh, into mutual funds um, based on those allocations so there's not really a lot of work. And then, of course, Ryan, as you alluded to, you're not just paying the 1.5% fee to your advisor. If that advisor puts you into mutual funds, you're also paying a fee to the mutual funds. So the story doesn't end at the 1.5%. We had a, a client come to us, came to me, asked me to take a look at a bond ETF. It was, it was supposed to be a conservative bond ETF that he wanted me to take a look at. So ETF, that's an exchange-traded fund. It's like a mutual fund, only it trades like a stock. So you just basically buy it and sell it like a stock really easily. Uh, So I took a look at this fund for him, and they were charging an MER of 1.5% on this fund. So management expense ratio of 1.5% on the fund. The fund on a long-term basis uh, was making about 5% or less. So that's a significant chunk, that 1.5%, that's a significant chunk of the profit. But when you look deeper, 
it was really just a fund that invested in other funds. So they weren't actually even doing any research to figure out which bonds should be inside that ETF. They were just taking your money and they were investing it in other ETFs. Well, those other ETFs, of course, have their own management expense ratios. So you have your advisor fee, you have your 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 uh, management expense ratio for your ETF, then you have um, other expenses. This is why investors often get so shocked because it's really difficult to know how deep the rabbit hole goes. Mm -hmm. um, and you have these expenses being layered on top of each other and it really destroys, it really starts to eat away at investment returns. And we, we also have to remember, once again, you're the one risking your capital. Yeah. So you, if, you're, if you're with an advisor that is actually providing you value on a risk-adjusted basis and is um, justifying their management fee, then you absolutely need to pay that because you're, you are getting excellent intellectual capital for it. Um, but you really have to ask yourself, is it worth it? Yeah. And if there's, yeah, I mean, certainly if, there, if you have an advisor who consistently is beating the market over the long term, that 1.5% can seem like a bargain. But if you have an advisor who just uh, puts a cookie cutter portfolio together, essentially buys the market or has, you know, a number of funds in there that have 100, 150 plus individual stocks in them, at that point you've bought the market and all you're going to do is underperform the market. And now if they overlay that 1.5% fee, you're going to underperform the market by that fee plus the you know, the MER fees on all of those mutual funds that you've been selected to put into your uh, portfolio. And and that's, you know, you don't need to pay that 1.5% fee to just perform at market and then slightly under because of those fees. So, you know, you can just buy your own ETFs yourself, mirror the market and perform just slightly under that because of those fees. And we talk about that in our seminars. Now, most of our clients are trying to beat the market long term. So we structure our portfolios differently, focus, focusing on high quality individual stocks. And, you know, that's what we talked to that gentleman about. And uh, that's how he has been building his portfolio now. And that's what we look to do for our clients going forward and, and have been doing for, you know, 20 years now. So let's, yeah, so we, yeah, Brennan, actually, you wanted to chime yeah, in before there? We, before we jump into the show here, you know, I just kind of had a, a general question for you guys. So a client recently reached out to me uh, and asked for some guidance on the best way to purchase the positions that he wanted to enter under um, our, our uh, research. Um, and essentially he asked if he should always be layering into positions or if he should be just, you know, pulling the trigger on full positions. Um, you know, and I think that this is just you know, uh, maybe we could get some uh, commentary from you guys as this is general uh, good advice for our listeners on using their own intuition on how to, you know, layer into or just enter into a position in general. What do you think, Ryan? Do you want to take that or you want me to take yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, I think that as far as the in, at the individual stock level, it is very individual to that company. Like we will often come out with a recommendation to say, buy a half position. So you can look at it. It may be based on uh, our analysis of that company. They may be right ahead of coming out with a quarter, which can have some near-term uncertainty. So you may buy a half position ahead of that quarter, and then we could we will provide advice to fill that full position if need be, or if we deem it to be um, a good choice following that quarter. Uh, so that would be the very company-specific angle to that. 
there's also, you know, you can look at general market conditions. If the overall market conditions are uh, relatively pricey, if you thought the markets would be relatively pricey overall, then you might want to, you know, take a half or quarter position to start in an individual company. Um, that can factor into your decision. But there, there are many, many times that it would really just be company specific. So if we, uh, if you know, if we really like a business, and even if the markets may be at a high, or we may view the broader valuations for the market at a high, we may still want to buy that full position because we see some catalysts coming forward in the near term that we just want to be positioned in that company right now. So it's going to be very investor specific. One of the things we like to define, too, is just buying a half position in general. What does this mean? We get this question. We had this question in our chat uh, session uh, uh, yesterday evening or or Monday evening. And it's just when we say a half position, buying a half position, what does that mean? I just like to give an example to clearly illustrate what we're talking about. If you were at a basic level, had $100,000, and we're going to deploy that in a 10-stock portfolio, what you'd be looking at is equally weighting those positions. And what equally weighting would mean is you just take 100000 divide that by 10, and then you're going to get 10 individual positions in there at 10% each. So a full position in that portfolio would be 10% or $10,000. So if we said buy a half position, what that would mean in your portfolio would be buying 5% or $5,000. And then we may follow that up with advice to add your full position to that. So add that equally weighted full position, add another $5,000 worth and get that up to $10,000 if we see fit to buy that other position or that full position in that stock. So hopefully that makes sense. I don't know if Aaron, you want to add anything on that, but uh, you know, we get those questions all the time. I glad, glad you brought that up, Brennan. And, and hopefully that illustrates what we're talking about when we say half position on the flip side, we also do sell halves at times for various reasons. But again, it's very company specific on all of these recommendations. Yeah, I, th- I think you covered it fairly well, Ryan. Uh, you know, it really just it, it, it is company specific. And for our clients, I'll just say that for our clients, we typically will discuss what our position is or our outlook is on a company in, in the conclusion of the report. So if we think that that investors should slowly enter positions, uh, then we would we would talk about that in the report. And then, of course, for our own clients, that's also why we have our weekly chat sessions where people can ask us questions. So if they're looking at a company that we've recommended that we like, uh, they can ask us then if they should if they if we think that generally speaking, investors should start with half position or full position. But if we find a company that we think is great value uh, on on a risk opportunity basis and where we see some really strong catalysts over the next six to 12 months, then we would probably just for most investors think that starting off with a full position would be would be advisable. Whereas if we're looking at a, a longer term company where there's maybe some uncertainty over the next couple of quarters, you know, in that case, we would we would say you're not necessarily in a big rush to fill up a full position right away. So you can start with that half position and then grow that over time. Yeah, and that would generally be what we look for. All right, so let's get into the show this week. Uh, we're going to look first at uh, our Your Stock, Our Take. It's time we answer a question on Your Stock in a little segment we like to call Your Stock, Our Take. Buy, sell, or hold. 
Aaron's going to look at the Trade Desk Inc., symbol TTD on the NASDAQ. Aaron? Excellent. Yes, the Trade Desk, symbol TTD. It's trading right now at a price of $262 per share. It's a $12 billion market cap company. The Trade Desk is a technology company that empowers buyers of, of advertising. The company provides a self-service cloud-based platform which allows ad buyers to create, manage, and optimize more expressive, data-driven digital advertising campaigns. The company is headquartered in California, and it has operations across the United States, Europe, and Asia. The Trade Desk has been a great stock to own so far in 2019, with the share price more than doubling since the start of the year. The stock is also up 36% just over the past couple of weeks since the release of the company's Q3 financial results on November 7th. So looking at the financial results, third quarter of 2019, quarterly revenue was up 38% to $164 million. Adjusted EBITDA or earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation and amortization was up 31% to about $48 million. And adjusted earnings per share or EPS was up 15% to $0.75 cents per share. The Trade Desk also has a very strong balance sheet with net cash per share of $2.51. The company reported strong spending growth from customers as well as strong customer retention of 95%. Management also provided guidance for 2019 and expects revenue to be at least $658 million and adjusted EBITDA of at least $209 million. This guidance was revised upwards slightly in the quarter, and it implies annual growth of about 38% in revenue and 31% in adjusted EBITDA. There was no guidance provided for earnings per share. It does appear, however, that the company is on track for about $3.40 per share in adjusted earnings for 2019, and this would put the valuation at about 77 times earnings. What's our take on the Trade Desk? Well, there is no doubt that the Trade Desk is a company with very solid financial characteristics. The company has produced consistent profitability and very strong double-digit growth in revenue, EBITDA, and earnings per share. It's also sitting on a very solid financial footing with a net cash balance sheet, and that's something that we love to see. However, what would keep Keystone from recommending the stock is really the valuation. At 77 times earnings, it's trading at a huge premium to the market right now. One concern that we have is that earnings per share growth did not keep pace with other metrics in the third quarter. EPS increased only 15% in Q3, while it was up 35% year to date. The question right now is whether or not this is an anomaly or if we should expect EPS growth to be lower going forward. When you're trading at a valuation of 77 times earnings, the market is going to expect you to maintain a very high growth rate, and in many cases, this may not be realistic. If that growth rate declines below market expectations, then the market will likely revalue the shares, and that can be very disastrous to the share price. In a situation like this, the share price can be going down while earnings per share continue to grow and revenues continue to grow. So for pure growth investors that don't care about valuation, I think that the trade desk is something to take a good look at. But for investors that are more price sensitive, that that invest with more of a a value perspective, then I think that the valuation is, is really out of range. And for Keystone, which we look at companies on a growth value basis, we wouldn't be we wouldn't be interested in in trade desk at the current price.
Yeah, I think that's an excellent summary. It's, it's you know, our approach, GARP, or growth at a reasonable price. Uh, you definitely have the growth here, a good balance sheet, uh, solid, consistent growth over time and growth going forward. But is it a reasonable price? And that's where the question comes in. Uh, if you're paying such a premium to the market, uh, yes, it may be growing above the market, but you know, not two, three times above the market like we see with its multiple. So it's growth, potentially not a reasonable price right now. Uh, that would have us sitting on the sidelines, but it's a great synopsis of the company and where they're sitting right now and even where we are looking forward on the trade desk. Thanks for that, Aaron. I'll just say uh, as well. I'll just, I'll just, I'll just end this yeah. off by saying that, and we talk to our clients about this a lot. It's really easy to find a great company. Um, there's mm-hmm. a lot of great companies out there, but a great company is not necessarily a great stock. What makes a great company a great stock is when you can buy that company for a reasonable price. Yeah. So if you see a company and valuation and what a reasonable price is really comes down to a lot of individual characteristics of the company. So if you see a company that's growing its earnings at 40 to 50% and it's trading at 80 to 100 times earnings, well, that's not necessarily bad valuation if you're quite assured that that earnings growth rate, that high 40 to 50% earnings growth rate is going to continue uh, for the foreseeable future for the for the next five years, 10 years. However, if that earnings growth rate drops from, say, 40% down to 10 to 15%, likely the valuation is going to drop too. And that's what really affects the share price. So it really comes down to how certain are you that that high growth rate is going to be maintained. If, they, if the company can maintain that high growth rate, then they can justify that very high valuation. But if you're not certain, if you're not confident in that growth rate going forward, then you really have to be price sensitive and focus on not overpaying for stocks. Yeah, and it's important to point out that the stock doesn't have to be cheap. It just has to be at a reasonable price relative to the growth, and and that's what we're looking at. So often a stock is cheap for a reason because there isn't a good growth outlook going forward, and that is a company that you would want to avoid. In this case, I mean, there is great growth here. And if the momentum continues in terms of growth, it probably continues to do well. Like Aaron said, though, there is a significant risk here. If there is any hiccup uh, in the results, uh, it likely likely has a relatively severe revaluation lower uh, if you don't see that growth continue. So let's look at our weekly star. From our Stars and Dogs segment, it's time for this week's Star. Star. That would be IEC Electronics Corporation, IEC on the New York Stock Exchange. Brennan? Thank you, Ryan. Okay, so IEC Electronics Corp. is currently trading at a price of $8.41 US and has a market cap of around uh, just under $87 US. So um, the stock was up around 18% last week, 27% in the last month, and up around 47% year to date. So IEC Electronics Corp. provides electronic manufacturing services to advanced technology companies that produce life-saving and mission-critical products for the medical, industrial, and aerospace and defense sectors. The company specializes in delivering technical solutions for the custom manufacture of complex, full-system assemblies by providing on-site analytical testing laboratories, custom design, and test engineering services combined with a broad array of manufacturing services encompassing electronics, interconnect solutions, and precision metalworking. 
end uh, for the most recent quarter um, or year end on September 30th, 2019. Uh, Sales by sector were 60% for the aerospace and defense, uh, 22% for the medical, and around 18% for industrial. So what's driving the stock here? The company's positive financial performance and attractive underlying fundamentals appear to be propelling the stock higher, as just over two years ago, the company was barely breaking into profitability. So taking a look at these financial results um, for quarter four, 2019, revenue increased around 28.4% to 43.9 million compared to the same quarter last year. EBITDA was up around 56% to 3.5 million compared to 2.24 million for Q4 of 2018. And after adjusting out a very large income tax benefit for Q4 2018, net income increased around 39% to 1.79 million compared to 1.29 million for the same quarter last year. Um, And also to touch on the backlog here, uh, the company increased its 2019 year-end backlog to 212 million, which is an an increase of 59% from fiscal 2018. Looking a little longer term, the company's 12 trailing month revenue increased around 34% compared to the same period last year, while uh, trailing 12-month EBITDA increased 110% period over period, showcasing the company's strong growth and profitability. Taking a look at IEC's balance sheet, uh, they do have a net debt position of around 2.66 million and a net debt to EBITDA ratio of around 0.25. So the company's balance sheet does appear strong um, and that they can easily pay off this debt going forward. So IEC's management hasn't provided any guidance for the upcoming 2020 fiscal year, but on a trailing 12-month basis, the company is trading at a price-to-earnings multiple of around 15 times, and it has an EV to EBITDA multiple of around 8.6 times. Both of these ratios uh, indicate that the stock is trading at a slight discount to the market, considering its impressive growth um, and breaking into profitability here. So I also thought that it might be good to highlight that the company's five largest customers accounted for approximately 51% of net sales. Um, You know, this is just kind of a risk factor. Therefore, if the company is to lose one of these large customers, operations would be negatively impacted. So although IEC is not a stock that Keystone currently recommends, it is definitely one that we are monitoring going forward here. The company's recent financial results, robust growth, healthy balance sheet, and relatively attractive trading multiples have caused the share price to surge, allowing IEC to claim our coveted status of star of the week. This is a, this is this is a good star to to look at this week because it's better than last week. Definitely better than last <laughs> week. Anything's better than last week. <laughs> That's good to hear. Now. This is a good example of a company where you you have a very strong growth rate, um, but but a reasonable valuation and a reasonable reasonable leverage on the balance sheet. So this is something that Keystone would look at. And in fact, we may actually decide to give this company a call over the next week or so here um, and take a look at the the recent conference calls to see what what we can learn. Now, fifteen times earnings that's actually a discount uh, to to the to the market right now in the U.S. Thirty nine percent growth in in earnings per share. Now. We would never suspect that level of growth to be sustainable long term, but certainly that that is a very impressive growth rate. So this is really something where you're you 
it could be a situation where it is growth at a very reasonable price. That said, um, you also have to consider the fact that it is a smaller company. It is more thinly traded, less known. So those companies are going to trade at a discount and rightfully so to many of their their large cap counterparts that are are far more well-known and far more stable. Uh, you also mentioned as well, Brennan, there is some customer concentration there. That's also a risk. So all of these risk factors, they all enter into the valuation. That's one of the reasons why we wouldn't expect uh, this company to trade at a 30-time multiple given given those fundamentals. But at 15 times, this is something that uh, that certainly we could look into further. And if we determine once you get past just what the company has produced on a trailing financial basis, if we were able to determine that the levels of growth are reasonably sustainable going forward, then um, it could actually result in, in, in a recommendation for us. Yeah, I agree. It does appear to offer some value here. Um, what we'd love to see from the business uh, current value, uh, we'd love to see some kind of guidance going forward, even some like overall direction in terms of whether they're looking for growth because you are flying in the dark a little bit. Uh, if you you know you see these reasonable valuations and you're not certain as to the growth uh, going forward, we have actually seen this company present at a conference that we were at in the last couple of years. So management was relatively solid during that presentation. We had a brief chat with them after as well. So you know it is definitely a company that's been on our radar screen, and uh, we'll continue to look at them going forward. And like Aaron said, uh, potentially um, either meet up with them or give them a call and. Uh, and see if we can see if there's any uh, growth guidance going forward. Because if we can put, combine a relatively reasonable price with a growth outlook, you know, those are things we like to see. So we're going to move on from our star to our weekly dog. From our stars and dog segment, it's time for this week's dog. <laughs> Organigram Holdings Inc., symbol OGI on the TSX. Current price is around three dollars and forty-two cents. Market cap of three or five hundred and thirty-four million in that range. The stock is down thirty-three percent in the last month and sixty-eight percent from its mid-May twenty nineteen highs. What does the company do? Well, Organogram is a licensed producer of cannabis and cannabis-derived products in Canada. Unlike most of its peers in Canada, Organogram has been EBITDA positive or had been for four straight quarters up until its last quarter. So let's take a look at that last quarter. Q4 2019 net revenue was 16.3 million. Now compare that not to year over year, but to the last quarter, Q3 2019, where net revenues were 24.8 million and there was a significant decline there. Uh, Adjusted EBITDA for the quarter after posting positive EBITDA in four previous quarters was now negative in this quarter and negative significantly at $7.9 million. Uh, compared to positive Q3, the quarter before adjusted EBITDA of $7.7 million. Q4 negative adjusted EBITDA was impacted by lower adjusted gross margin and higher SG&A compared to Q3 2019. Management has stated that the lack of sufficient retail network and slower-than-expected store openings in Ontario continue to impact growth in Q4 2019 and were further exacerbated by increased industry supply. 
Quarter-to-quarter revenue is expected to continue to be volatile due to the timing of large pipeline orders for Ontario, in particular where there is a centralized distribution model and where store additions are difficult to forecast. On the positive side in the quarter, Q4 2019 cash and all-in costs of cultivation of $0.66 and $0.94 per gram of dried flour harvested, respectively, decreased from $0.95 and $1.29, which is what we saw in Q3 2019. So these are more in line with their historical levels. And on another positive, over time, Organogram has shown to be one of the lower-cost producers in Canada. Now, the company's latest outlook as at November, uh, as at November management has stated uh, that Organogram has shipped more sales compared to the same point in their Q1 2020. They've shipped more sales compared to the same point in Q4 2019. The company believed at that time that it was neither possible nor prudent to provide any further guidance given the dynamic forces and uncertainty in the industry today. So if you combine that with the uncertain near-term outlook or combine the certain uncertain near-term outlook with poor current qual- uh, quarterly results, and you can see why the stock has lost six, over 60% since its mid-May highs. In Ontario in particular, the retail rollout has been delayed for various reasons, and this in turn has significantly affected the sales that companies such as Organogram were targeting, giving rise to an industry-wide concern over over-promising and under-delivering, a term or a trend that investors tend to loathe. Now, Organogram appears to have a relatively low cost structure, and there has been more of a focus here on the business on profitability than some of its peers. We continue to monitor Organogram as there may be a longer-term opportunity in the company given the strong revenue growth that is planned going forward. But out of ties, the stock got well ahead of the underlying fundamentals, and we caution that many of the analyst targets on this industry have been fueled by efforts to gain financing revenues for their firms rather than provide Uh, investors with great advice and great share price returns over the long term. Again, we continue to monitor Organogram, but the drop this past week and since its May highs of 68% make it our dog of the week. This is uh, th- this has been uh, uh, an issue with just the cannabis space overall. If you look at the if you look at the the performance, the share price performance of of the top companies in the space, I mean it's been absolutely horrendous since legalization. A lot of the some of the stocks, some of the stocks down as much as eighty percent. Um, larger ones, I believe Canopy's down something like fifty percent, um, and these companies were also down from their highs shortly before that. So, really, what we've said before. Uh, around the time of legalization was that um, previous to legalization, these companies were allowed to make promises. They could make promises without any pressure of having to deliver on those promises in the short term because everything was based on future potential. Uh, Now that we're actually in the market, now that we're actually in a legal recreational cannabis market, these companies are now under pressure to control costs, to grow their revenues, and to achieve profitability and investors are realizing that that is a lot more difficult than what they had originally uh, originally anticipated. 
I think you bring up a really good point in there where um, essentially you were saying that um, like there's bottlenecks in the supply chain in Ontario. So I don't know if you guys just saw in recent news, um, like this is just a headline here that I'll, I'll read, but on, it, it says Ontario moles overhauling pot shop system in 2020 as sales lag. Um, so essentially what they're proposing here is the Ontario government is considering getting rid of the, the lottery uh, process where they say that they've only or which has only led to about uh, two dozen legal pot shops. And instead they're kind of planning on pivoting as early as January, they're saying um, to a more open allocation system for issuing pot store licenses um, where it would allow people to essentially go online, um, try to get a license online. And then that's where they'd basically do all of the, the background checks. So I just think that, you know, that's like you did, uh, you know, mention just the bottlenecks in Ontario. So I know that they are, you know, trying to, you know, help the, uh, the cannabis sector right now. Um, you know, it might, uh, it might not help going forward, but, uh, but yeah, I thought it was a good point to bring up. Now, certainly the regulatory structure has hindered the, um, the getting market share from, from illegal sales. Absolutely. Yeah. And it seems like poorly implemented, poorly planned structure from a government, which is really shocking, really shocking. Oh, I'm shocked. I am absolutely shocked <laughs> by that. But um, yeah, and in, it does just outline any emerging industry, the risks, uh, there's a lot of going into it, a lot of forecasts, and many of those uh, have not been hit. It's been a bit of, wild, a bit of a wild west out there. And you still have uh, the looming presence of the you know, illegal, the black market for cannabis too, and many people just getting their supply continued from that market. And, you know, and these factors... When we, I look at, and, and I'm sure you guys have looked at some of the estimates from some of the other analysts out there that uh, quote unquote follow these businesses, um, the, you know, just the blue sky estimates that we saw there, uh, really, really irresponsible from uh, my perspective in terms of looking at providing advice to individual investors and more targeted towards just providing glowing reports so these companies could raise capital and they could make money off them and now when the, you know the poop hits the fan you can see many of these targets from these firms are now being lowered but they've already made their money off of the uh, financing for this industry and um, and the again the average retail investor who at the time of legalization was being sold on the absolute blue sky potential and that you had to be in on this segment have lost um, significant amounts of capital. Again, we have just conducted a full round of research into this segment. It highlights, uh, highlights a lot of the risks associated with the sector, but also a couple companies that actually are um, relatively profitable in the segment, and we'll, we'll be putting that out for our clients shortly. Yeah, I also want to add something there too. Um, I was doing a, a research report just b before I was even employed with you guys um, on a cannabis company. Um, and essentially I was using um, some forward-looking estimates for revenue and EBITDA uh, in one of their slide decks. And essentially, or afterwards, I ended up reaching out to the company, um, showing them my report. And they actually asked me if I could if I could not cite the EBITDA and the revenue targets going forward, um, because I guess they, they actually weren't IROC compliant. So it just shows, you know, the amount of grossly overestimated revenues and EBITDA uh, figures that were out there. Um, and again, like you said, Ryan, just the blue 
blue sky potential um, that people thought, or especially these companies thought um, that they were going to generate going forward. Yeah, and and you know you you saw those blue sky numbers that came out. People invested based on that. Very irresponsible, and there should have been some potentially you know regulatory action on that. But now you see many of the firms completely pulling all their guidance. And, uh, you know, now a lot of investors are left to fly in the dark when you don't have guidance going forward. Uh, it is an issue uh, in all these businesses that raised money based on blue sky guidance. And, and now they pulled their guidance when they're sitting on some cash. It's it's not the way we would like to see it. Um, and that's why there's, you know, this time last year and heading into legalization, we said to avoid the sector completely. Um, now that everybody is sold off the sector, there may be some value here, but there's certainly a higher level of risk that continues in this segment. And I think that's going to do it for our show this week. A long show this week, but it was great to dig into a number of topics. I'd like to thank my co-hosts, Brennan and Aaron, and I'd like to wish our listeners out there profitable investing. Profitable investing. Thank you.